Dear God, I thank you for each person here. Lord, we are grateful for all that you have done for us. And Lord, yet so often we find ourselves not content. We find ourselves unsatisfied. And so I just pray that as we spend our time thinking about this, that you, your spirit would do a work among us and reveal to us every inch of that unsatisfied part of our heart, whatever that looks like, and to bring it into a submission to you and to true joy and contentment in a relationship with you. Lord, we ask this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Contentment is simply the cultivation of a satisfied heart, according to Jeff Mannion, and I appreciate that definition. I want you to think about whether it's looking in the mirror or whether it's looking around your family, your workplace, your neighborhood, your church, your community. How many people do you know who have a fully satisfied heart? I think we live in a very discontented culture. It's kind of a a hustle culture. It's kind of a a culture that um, just our media, our commercials, people are paid good money to make us discontent so that we will purchase the next item, whatever that might be. I think there's lots of sources of discontentment. Greed is one of them. Greed for stuff, that materialism. I was reading an author, Jeff Mannion, and uh, in his book, Satisfied, he talked about going to visit his grandmother in the nursing home. And he said he looked around, she had a bed, she had a chair, a little desk. I mean, just very, it was very cozy, but very little there. And he thought about, you know, 90 years before, how her parents would have brought her home to a little nursery that would have had a bed, would have had very little in it. And he said, you know, really life is a journey from one room to another. And he said, it's amazing how much we accumulate, how much we're driven to accumulate when we don't really need that much. Max Lucado talks about that the largest, most uh, full prison in the world is the prison of want, W-A-N-T. And he said, so many of us spend so much time there. We want what's bigger, newer, faster. And one of the indicators that you might be in that prison is if you could answer quickly the question, I will be happy when? I will be happy when? How would you fill that in? And so we want to think about contentment. The Bible talks about the trying to accumulate stuff as, as chasing wind. Um, the voice of contentment, I think, speaks to us. The Holy Spirit, in essence, whispers to us that, that there can be deep joy, even if you don't have everything that you want. I know that's counterculture, but I believe it's true. One, another source of discontentment, it's not just um, greed or materialism, but I also think it's comparison. My parents like to send our kids money for certain holidays, and Henry was a little guy, our youngest, and he opened up a card, and there was a $10 bill from his grandparents. And I mean, he's literally, he's young enough that he is like jumping up and down. He's super excited about this $10 bill. And I won't say which one, but one of his older brothers said, well, in my card, there was $20. 
Now, that was not true. <laughs> he was just messing with him. But that little guy just deflated. And then he told him the truth, and he was just messing with him, and he kind of re rebounded. But comparison, comparison is one of the ways that can really mess with our contentment. Many of you are on social media, I'm on Facebook, and, and just try to remember that when you see somebody else's life on Facebook or any form of social media, you are seeing their highlight reel. And when you look at your own life, you're seeing the backstage pass, right? And it's not a fair comparison. I don't care who it is that you're looking at. Even among the apostles you know, who followed Jesus, who should have known better, who were so close to him, you still see some of this. I, there's kind of a funny conversation between uh, Peter and Jesus. And you know, it's, it's sad because Jesus basically tells him a way he's going to die, which was he's going to die as a martyr. And he's like, well, well, what about him? And points to John. And Jesus says, well, if, you know, maybe he'll stay alive till I come back, which he didn't promise that. He just said, look, this is, this is individual. I'm just talking to you. And, and so we do this. We compare with other people. And so I want to encourage you to love your life, not envy or be jealous of somebody else's life. It's so crucial that we do this because it, it, discontentment hurts us in so many different ways. I think of King David, who is an amazing man in many ways, and yet his big crash with Bathsheba, you know, he's, he's kind of restless, he's in midlife, and he looks over and he sees this beautiful woman bathing, and he was married. As a matter of fact, he had multiple wives. He wasn't supposed to do that, but he did. And, and yet, he wanted more. He wanted her. He was discontent with what he had. As you read the Old Testament, King Solomon, I mean, talk about somebody who just went down every possible path of discontentment to, to find satisfaction. He went down all of it. Fame, wisdom, women, sex, all these different things. And he just, you know, he went down all these different paths that, that maybe we couldn't do or can't do. And he examined where they all went, and they're all dead ends. And I love what he says. He says, vanity, vanity, or meaningless, meaningless. And his conclusion to the matter is found in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13. He says, now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. As King Solomon, who had the resources and the ability to go down all these paths of discontentment, we should believe him. We should believe that the solution is God himself. You know, while I don't think it's the only issue, I was reading a source that said, in America today, we have about 3,000 divorces a day. And I suspect it's not the only issue, but woven in that is a discontentment. Because you see all the flaws. 
I really appreciated a book I read about marriage and said the purpose of marriage is not to make you happy like our culture teaches, it's to make you holy. Because you're in that close-knit oneness relationship and all the flaws are revealed, all the weaknesses are revealed, and you have to choose to be faithful, choose to be committed, choose to be loving despite all the ugliness or brokenness that you find. So the passage, the main passage today is Philippians chapter 4, verse 10 through 20. I love that here's a passage that I think, you know, one of the big themes is contentment, written by a man, the Apostle Paul, who's in prison at the time. And woven through this book, one of the major themes is joy, which I love, that he writes from prison this epistle of joy. And so he begins in Philippians chapter 4, verse 10, I rejoice greatly in the Lord, we're going to go to verse 20, that at last you renewed your concern for me. So he's writing to the Philippian church. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned, I love this word, learned phrase, learned to be content. Do you need to learn to be content? I have days I need to. Learn to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. That's one of the most well-known passages in the Bible. I think it's often misapplied, and I'll mention that in a bit. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles, Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once. And he was in Thessalonica a very short time. When I was in need, not that I desire your gifts, what I desire is that more be credited to your account. See, he believed that you're rewarded for your good deeds of generosity and kindness, service. I've received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God, and my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. I love that promise. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. When you look around your life today, I think a great question to ask is, how can I see beauty in this moment, in this season of my life, in this relationship with my spouse or my kids or my coworkers? One author, Emily Freeman, says this about um, contentment. She said, how can I sit down on the inside? I love that. How can I sit down on the inside? Because a lot of us have that little rodent running on the wheel, right? How can I sit down? How can I be content? Now, Scripture does call us to become, to change, to grow. But I think he also calls us to be, to appreciate the sovereignty of God, the plan of God, to trust him. 
In the Old Testament, there's an interesting thing in the Psalms in particular called the Selah. And we see this in the Psalms. So, you know, these prayers, these songs, and you read through and there's these points where there's, there's a pause, a holy pause. And I think we can have more contentment in our life if we learn to have a holy pause in our lives. Contentment is beautiful when it's practiced, when you walk it out. And so I encourage you to take Jesus up on his offer when he says, come to me and I will give you rest. Contentment can look, up, look a lot of different ways. I think there are different faces of contentment. I think of John Ortberg talking about one of his mentors, Dallas Willard. He said he was in class and Dallas Willard was teaching and this student kind of came at him, rather combative, really wanted to argue and it was close to the end of the class, and Dallas Willard just said, you know, um, I think it's a great time to end the class. And he just ended the class. And afterwards, several students went up, and they were like, why didn't you let him have it? Why didn't you? Because he, you know, he's a brilliant guy. He could have shut the student down. And I appreciate what he said. His answer was this. He said, I'm practicing the discipline of not having the last word. That's a face of contentment. That might be a personal challenge for some of us, right? We're so driven. Maybe it's financially. I think of a man who was just sitting in a little boat, just slightly off the shore, just relaxing. He had a fishing pole out there, but not really. You know, he's just kind of hanging out. And a businessman came walking down the beach. He was on vacation, and he struck up a conversation with the man sitting in the boat. And, and he said, you know, how's the fishing here? And the man said, oh, it's wonderful, and, you know, you can really pull in a lot. And, and so the businessman began to, the wheels began to turn. He said, well, you know, why don't you, you know, buy a bigger boat and buy bigger nets, you know, catch and really work hard. And, and he just kind of laid out this whole plan about how this man could, you know, just keep getting bigger and better and make more money and all of this. And the man looked at him and said, well, then what would I do, you know, when I'm all done with all of that? And he said, well, then he goes, you could kick back and relax. And the man smiled. He said, what do you think I'm doing right now? There's something to be said for contentment. Bronnie Ware, an Australian uh, palliative caregiver who walks alongside of patients in their dying final season, um, she wrote a book and she talked about entries of what people would say in kind of that last stage. And one that stood out to her, she said this, she said, one person said, I wish I had let myself be happier. See, that's a cry for contentment. So as we dig into this passage, we want to learn, like the Apostle Paul, which I find that encouraging that he had to learn it as well. I don't think we just have it normally. Learn to be content. What are these keys? Well, the first one is a dependent strength through God, a dependent strength through God. Now, in Paul's day, the Stoics were a very prominent school of thought, philosopher group, and they were all about self-sufficiency. Um, they, they would have, you know, objected to his statement because what, what Paul advocates is right here in Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. It's a God dependency, not a self-sufficiency. 
The Stoics would have been, they would have reworded it and said, I can do all things through my own self-will. And Paul would have said, oh no. It's a dependence strength through God. Part of the Christian life is learning to be small. Learning to be humble. Jesus modeled this path downward for us. Here he is, God the Son. He's at all eternity past. He's being worshipped by the angels. And yet, they decide to create God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. This one God, three persons, creates the universe, creates us. And then we mess it up. But they already had a plan. And so, Jesus goes from being majestic to a manger. He goes from being the ultimate picture of beauty in heaven to being a baby. Which babies are beautiful, don't get me wrong, but there's the whole diaper thing and all of that, right? And so Jesus becomes very small. The theologians talk about how he strips off the prerogatives of deity. He went from being able to be everywhere to being one place. He put limits on how he walked things out. He knew everything, and as God the Son wrapped in Jesus the man, you know, the fully human, fully divine, we have him on record in the scripture saying, well, I don't, I don't know when I'm going to return. Now, he knows now, once he went back, because he took that mantle back on. But he limited himself in the incarnation. And so we as Christians need to have this dependent strength through God. We need to think this through. Now, I see this passage, you know, I can do all this or all things through him who gives me strength. I see it misused all the time and people kind of grab it as a rah-rah and you can go be whatever you want to be. And the reality is you can do whatever God wants you to do. But there's a lot of foolishness attached to misusing this particular passage. Like, you know, at 52 years old in the shape I'm in, I would not want to claim this verse and, and begin to pray to be in the NFL, right? Wouldn't that be foolish? The Lord up there would be just chuckling. Like, that's the stupidest one we've heard yet, right? And so, it's whatever God wired you to do, called you to do, wants you to do. And in this context, he's specifically talking about contentment in a place like prison, which seems unlikely, and yet we can do it because of not our own self-sufficiency, but a God-sufficiency, this dependent power or strength through God. Oswald Chambers, in his famous book, My Utmost for His Highest, gives us something to think about. He says, it is ingrained in us that we have to do exceptional things for God, but we do not. We have to be exceptional in the ordinary things of life and holy on the ordinary streets among ordinary people. And this is not learned in five minutes. The idea is that a contented life, a small life, scripture talks about a quiet life, can be very God-honoring. And to be honest, if you look at our culture, people grasping and clawing for their 15 minutes of fame, fame is usually destructive, is it not? Watch what it does to marriages. Watch what it does to the Hollywood crowd. Our part is simply to follow God and to be dependent on Him. 
Emily Freeman once said, be loved, be small, and belong to Christ. I think Jesus is getting at this in the Sermon on the Mount where he begins and he says in Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's that humility. You can't accept the gospel if you're proud. You can't accept the gospel if you don't think you need it. If you go through your list of righteousness and believe it's good enough to get you into heaven, then you, it's not going to work. There has to be a conviction there, an understanding that you are flawed, that you are broken, that you are a rebel, that you have done wrong, and you need what Jesus provides, that he took the penalty for us, paid the price for us. So the first part of having contentment is this dependent strength through God. The second part is a grateful partnership with the people of God. This helps us to be content. In the midst of a hard time, look for the good moments, and often those involve other people, the people of God. Maybe you have that moment where at night you pray with your child. Stop and actually just savor that moment. That's not going to last forever. Maybe you're at the stage where you're babysitting a grandchild. Savor that moment. Now, you know, if they absolutely wear you out, savor the moment where you hand them back. <laughs> Going on a trip with your spouse, you know, hit pause, hit that, that holy pause and say, this is a good moment. This is a good day. And here he is, I mean, we're really digging into a thank you note from the Apostle Paul where he's savoring a moment where they have shown him kindness and generosity. And he's saying, this is a good moment. Philippians chapter 4, verse 15 and 16 of our text, he shows about how um, no other church shared with him except them. And even when he was in Thessalonica for this short period of time, they sent more than once to help him. And so there's this beauty of having a grateful partnership with the people of God as you work out life together, as you use your gifts, not just for your own edification, for your own honor or glory, but towards the goal. Francis Chan talks about, it's like God gives us all ice skates, and the idea is not to go and learn some tricks at the ice rink and just kind of show off. It's to join a championship hockey team and play together towards a goal. And the goal is to bring honor to God. And so, I love how he says in Philippians chapter 4, verse 14, yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Aren't those sweet moments when somebody comes alongside of you in a painful season? That you sent me help, he talks about. In, in verses 15 through 18 of our text, he sent, you know, they sent help to him multiple times. Now, not all of you have been with us for the whole journey of this congregation, but it's, it's amazing, and you may not realize how many people who never have been to Fairbanks have helped us. I mean, literally yesterday, I opened up an envelope, and it was a check from some youth sponsors of mine um, when I was in junior high. Now, that's quite a while ago, Right? And they'll never attend here. 
They don't live in this state. They still live in Indianapolis, Indiana, where I'm from. But they believe in what we're doing. And like these Philippians, they want to bless and support someone that they have a relationship with. And so there's a grateful partnership. Who's spoken into your life? Who's been a mentor? Who's come alongside? Experience and celebrate that grateful partnership. Maybe sit down this week and write a thank you note. Just say, thank you for investing in me. The third idea, when I look at this particular passage, when it comes to trying to develop contentment in our life, is to embrace the perspective of God. See, we have this entitled culture that has this insatiable appetite for more. We're always demanding the newer, the bigger, the better, and nothing's, you know, good enough for very long. You know, maybe you pull out your cell phone and it's a couple versions back and somebody looks at you critically. And so when you look at our passage, Philippians 4.18, remember that he's in prison they sent a gift, and I'm sure that's helpful and great. Notice how he phrases and describes the situation. In verse 18, he says, I have more than enough. I am amply supplied. And he said, what you sent is like a fragrant offering, which if you're a Jewish reader, you would hearken back to how the um, sacrifices in Leviticus were described. That It was like a sweet smell in the nostrils of God. This idea of someone offering sacrifice and generosity and making an offering to him. The same phrase is used in talking about the cross of Jesus Christ in that offering he gives for my sins and for your sins. If you go back um, to Proverbs chapter 30, verse 8 and 9, you see a very different perspective than the American ideal because we tend to want to get as much as we possibly can. Notice what it says here in Proverbs 30. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. I mean, I've never seen a commercial say that. I don't see anyone in this culture talking about this. I, I don't want too much. I mean, I need to survive, but I don't want too much. Have you ever stopped to think about financially? What's your enough number? You ever stopped to think about it? I've watched this as a, as a minister, and, and obviously you have to weigh decisions and pray over things, but I've watched people that do, you know, they're doing really well, and they're involved in church, and their family's doing well, and they're, uh, they're connecting, they're growing, things are really good, and then the husband, usually, gets offered like a 20% raise to go and there's more promotion and but you got to go to Seattle or you got to go to Portland or wherever. And so often it doesn't seem like there's even consideration of looking at how healthy this moment, this place, this relationship, this family is. I would just challenge you when you find yourselves in those moments to weigh all the factors not just the money factor. To really wrestle with calling. I just think that's fascinating. Neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. And I mean, it can be gluten-free if you, if you want, right? Whatever we are facing, 
Because I, I, I find great comfort in the sovereignty of God. Because it just, I mean, you, you look at the country and you look at people in, in leadership and it just seems like such a mess all the time. And I just find great comfort in the sovereignty of God that wherever I am, whether I'm Paul in a prison, in a jail cell, thinking this could be it. This could be the final season. That you are in a place that has not surprised God. He saw it coming. He is working for your good. And so he either sent it or he allowed it. Because he's not weak. His hands are not tied. He is God. He is the one who speaks and a universe is created. And so just embrace that perspective of God that what he gives us is enough and we can be content in that and I think he's working for our good Jeremiah 29 11, so many people love this verse for I know the plans I have for you declares the Lord plans to prosper you not to harm you plans to give you hope in a future he says that to a people who are facing 70 years of exile he says but I'm working for you I'm working with you I desire what's best for you. Trust me. And so one regular prayer would be when you look at your life, when you look at the lives of maybe your grown children and say, Lord, give me an eternal perspective. And it will help you to have contentment. So we want to embrace that perspective of God. The fourth idea is to rely on the promises of God. The promises of God. You know, so many of us had this internal dialogue that's going on in our lives. You know, I was reading one source and he said the average person has more than 60,000 thoughts per day. That seems more than my number, but okay. <laughs> and 80% of these thoughts are negative, according to that source. I, I don't know. Some are negative. But if you can focus your mind on the promises of God... It can transform. It can renew that mind. It can change you. I love the one that's in this passage, Philippians 4.19, and my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. That's not your greeds. That's not all your wants, but it's your needs. And Paul, if we could have a camera into his, you know, his cell at the prison, we would not see a man who's just pacing back and forth filled with anxiety and worry and stress, we would see a person resting in contentment in the sovereignty and the compassion and the love of God. We would not see him pounding on the door and calling the jailer and asking, hey, have I gotten a package from the Philippians yet? Have they sent anything? If it showed up, it would be a blessing. If it didn't show up, he's okay. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, we see a group of people who did rely on the promises of God. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. These are people who believed the promises. They were generous when it made no sense. They served when it was inconvenient. They gave them themselves when it was a challenge. You know, I've never forgotten that one, this older man, he was a senior citizen back when I was at a church in Indianapolis. And 
we served with him, a delightful older older guy. And I'll never forget, we were, you know, here at Journey, this was in the early years, and and he he was in a nursing home, and he literally mailed us like three dollars, three crumpled bills. And I was just like, I don't, I just don't even remotely feel worthy. Like the widow's might in scripture. Like what what do we do? But that was the kind of guy that relied on God's promises to think outside of himself, to do something I wouldn't have recommended he do, you know. And and I just I just appreciate how the promises of God that he will give us what we need. He will always be with us. How that can give us contentment. If you look at Matthew chapter 6, verse 31 through 33, Jesus is speaking in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Are you running after some stuff? Are you running after fulfillment? Are you ignoring the rest and the contentment that God offers? God will reward us if we serve, if we give, if we sacrifice for his kingdom. I appreciate Proverbs chapter 19, verse 17. Whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will reward them for, they have, uh, for what they have done. Throughout the scripture, Jesus talks about what's done in secret. God will reward that. And so we want to be people who serve and give, people who rely on the promises of God. And it gives us a freedom and a confidence and a contentment as we go through life. The final idea is this. The point of contentment is glory for God. Paul, and he does this throughout his writings, he kind of burst into praise. It's like he can't help himself. I know I'm in jail, but I got a care package. And I'm just going to praise God. And he ends this passage with a doxology. Um, You know, he starts the passage. It's kind of interesting. He starts it in Philippians 4.10, the first part, I rejoice greatly in the Lord, which I think is incredible because he's in jail. And then he ends the passage in Philippians 4.20 with, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Because many of us, so many of us, because of the entitlement that just has soaked into our hearts and our psyches, are like, Lord, I have some real suggestions here because you seem to be not doing what you're supposed to do because I'm in jail. Things are not going well. This is not what I signed up for. But I think Paul got it. I think he realized what he signed up for. Our deepest need is Christ himself. And our soul, our, the essence of who we are, it, it will orbit about something, whatever you believe is most valuable, what's most important, and it's called worship. And you can worship a particular relationship, you can worship family, you can worship money, you can worship your career. It's whatever you believe is most important and most satisfying and will give you the most contentment. My hope is that you, like Paul, that I, like Paul, will 
find and direct our satisfaction, our worship to God himself, to Christ. What do we value most? Psalm 37, 4 says, Take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. He will align them up. That doesn't mean you get every wish list. It means he gives you joy and contentment and peace and relationships. Psalm 46, 10 says, Be still and know that I am God. I love that. Be still and know that I am God. Relax in him. Be content in him. Make the relationship with him what's most important. There was an old Puritan. He sat down to a very simple meal of literally bread and water. And he bowed his head and he said this. He said, all this and Jesus too? And I love that. See, the big idea this morning, the message that I believe Paul is giving us is that Jesus is enough. Let's pray. Dear God, I thank you for all that you have given us in your Son. Forgiveness, salvation, grace, compassion, meaning, purpose, life, confidence about the next life, a certainty about heaven. Lord, thank you for Jesus, for he is enough. Lord, I pray that we walk that out in a way that brings you honor and glory. This is our prayer. In the name above all names, Jesus Christ, amen.